Hello and welcome to the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. And I'm Albert Imperato. Where we help men communicate and build empathy. All right, Albert, here we go again. We are back in it and uh, it's exciting to see you here. A little change up of my life in the last little bit. Uh, we've had some some fun and interesting times in the last little bit. Uh, Standard and strange. Change up of your life? What are we talking about? You're talking about a new job? Is that what you mean? Uh, new job, you know, um, on there. Uh, there's also been some uh, <laughs> kind of some deaths in my family. So that's uh, a little bit of a shuffle around there and, and some some changing of, of things. Um, I'm so sorry. Did you say deaths as in plural of death? As in plural of deaths. Yes. I'm so sorry, um, dude. Hey, it happens. You know, that's that's life and, and what's going on. And, um, you know, it's not anything that we were like completely shocked about. Uh, for me, you know, my uncle, I, you know, on previous episodes, we spoke about, you know, he was fighting cancer and, um, you know, he, he beat cancer. He got out. He was in remission. Uh, and then in between the last time we taped our last show and today, uh, he caught COVID and, uh, oh, and died. Like he was, he was even, uh, once vaxxed, he was, uh, you know, approved to be vaccinated by his doctors, got, got the shot and then just got it. And then, uh, just it couldn't handle it. So it was, it was really strange. It was really weird, um, to, you know, be in that situation of, of that kind of like back and forth of, you know, Hey, we're, we're, you know, we're here for your health. We're here for your safety. And then doing that for like a year and a half while, while he's fighting cancer is just, you know, there, there's, he did so well. And then just boom, left field, just COVID came and, and did that. And, um, but he, he, he got the shot because he had COVID or after he had COVID or he, he got the shot after he beat cancer for the third time and was well enough to get it, um, and got approved from his doctor. And then a couple weeks after that just happened. <laughs> so, wow. I mean, it seems like we could have an entire episode to understand, you know, what just happened there in terms of the science of what just happened. I mean, he basically, the shot. So rather than give him immunity, it basically took him down. Well, I mean, he he got it, and then just in in between the the shot times, um, contracted COVID. So I don't think it was the shot itself. It was a little bit afterwards. So oh my god, what bizarre and horrible timing! Yeah. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I don't, I'm. I mean, I'm totally happy. Maybe we should talk after we. <laughs> interview our guest today and talk about that subject. Um, I'm really, really sorry. And you said deaths. There was a second death. Yeah. So whenever I found out about that, you know, I got the call and everything was, I was like, wow, shocking. Okay. Um, Didn't expect that to happen. So I call, you know, my buddy Matt for, for support and stuff. And I was just like, Hey man, like, I can't believe this just happened. He's like, well, uh, you know, I'm kind of in the same boat. Uh, You know, we didn't talk for a day or so. Uh, His mother had cancer for quite some time. It's like, yeah, Thursday night, like after, after I spoke to you and, you know, I was taking care of my mom, like in the middle of the night, she passed away too. And I was just like, get out. (laughs) So I was just like, I found about like two, two deaths in in one day. And it was just, it was really emotional actually um, that was going on. But Luckily, Matt. We're talking your friend, it. Matt, the comedian, yeah. Matt, my, mm-hmm. the, who I'm very fond of. His mom had, I'm so sorry for Matt. He's just a beautiful guy. And I assume he had a beautiful, he had a beautiful mom. I'm really sorry for those losses. That's just horrible. Yeah. So it, it's, it's been a wild change up because, I, well, one thing we're going through it a little bit together, which is nice. Um, we've had a lot, a lot of time to talk and, and speak about it. And, you know, I, I, I got the one message, like, you know, in the middle of the night where, 
he was driving home and it was just like, Hey man, like if it weren't for you and like this whole experience that I've been going through, like I probably would have flipped out and gone crazy, but like, you've been there for me and now I get to be there for you, you know, while, while this is happening. So it's, uh, it's tough. It's, it's hard. Um, but you know, when you have a good friend and, and when you have someone that, that understands what you're going through, it's, it, it can become a really meaningful experience. So I don't want to dwell on this too much. We have a really exciting show I do, for this. <laughs> I do want to talk further about it and maybe yeah. we can talk, maybe, maybe actually our next episode can be just a discussion of loss. Uh, I'm coming up on the 10th anniversary of my mom passing away. Oof. And that was, that was a, a rather eventful year in my life. So I, I might have some of my own perspectives that might be useful to you. I mean, just very, very long story sh short is that, you know, everybody has to confront those, these ultimate moments when they lose um, a loved one. And obviously the, the death of a parent is, is the most substantial. And, um, you know, in my case, it was this, it was unexpected and it was rather quick and it was kind of shocking. I have other friends who've lost parents after long illnesses and it's like watching the dynamics and how we're affected by the timing of them and our expectation of, of, of them uh, are really incredibly powerful experiences. And they're very, very different. And you, you have to, uh, you deal with them in very, very different ways. And I kind of feel like sharing those experiences with friends was a way of saying, Oh, I lost my parents suddenly. And it was so shocking and it was so horrible. Uh, but then, then you watch someone who's watching a parent be ill for a long, long time and that's a whole different set of, of very, very challenging and, and scary uh, moments. Anyway, I do think it's it's worth a, a show if you would if you would do it, and if you're up for it, yeah, I would. Of course, I would be totally up for talking about it. Um, wow, exhale. I'm going to exhale for a moment because yeah, I've been a little heavy. Lately getting I've been getting a lot of uh, a lot of sustenance lately from dipping back into like more conscious study of like Buddhistic thinking and teaching, and. Um, I think it's, I, I think it might help the conversation as well. Um, so um, it's Sunday morning. Um, it's always a special time when we make, we have a guest to, to do another episode. And today's uh, guest is a fellow named Devin Gordon. And uh, Devin, I know you like when I explain how, uh, how we came across paths with our guests. Uh, Devin, uh, is a rather accomplished writer, um, and he had written a story for The Atlantic, which is a magazine I'm quite fond of. It's a one of those magazines that delves very deeply into, into its subjects and gives writers uh, often really long uh, uh, platforms, uh, lots of space in the magazine to tell big stories. And, you know, I've followed stories about uh, all kinds of political stories, major political stories that the Atlantic covers so beautifully have even had luck over the years and having a couple of artists and composers that I'm fond of featured in the magazine. But what caught my eye in the Atlantic at that time was a very long article about Joe Rogan that the podcaster, UFC commentator, comedian. Um, and it just struck me. I couldn't believe that the Atlantic was going to profile Joe Rogan. Like he's already got a massive following. Why does he need a really thoughtful magazine need to profile him? And so I was totally fascinated by this article. And it was, it was, first of all, it's brilliantly uh, written because De Devin's a terrific writer, but it got me thinking a lot. Uh, you know, he's like, 
probably the most famous podcaster and you and I are like the least famous podcasters. So I thought, <laughs> my God, I'm going to learn from this guy. But it got me thinking a lot about celebrity in America, male culture, et cetera. So just on a whim, I wrote to Devin and uh, he's a good guy. And he wrote back to me, turned out his wife, who uh, runs an art gallery in Brookline, I believe it's in Brookline, mm-hmm. um, is a big, big fan of Yo-Yo Ma. And Yo-Yo Ma is a, the, the famous cellist, is actually someone that my company works with. We, we manage his social media. So it was like, oh my God, we have this other connection. So Devin and I started talking and the, today he, he joins us on the show. So I'm, I'm really super psyched. So I don't know if you, without further ado, do you want to maybe just read a, a brief intro, a little yep. bio? Devin Gordon is a contributing writer for a number of publications, including the New York Times Magazine, ESPN, the magazine, GQ, the Atlantic and the Guardian. In 2013, an article he edited by GQ correspondent Chris Heath about a private zoo massacre in Zanesville, Ohio, won the National Magazine Award for Excellence in Reporting. He is also the author of a new book about the Mets and the fine art of being terrible called So Many Ways to Lose, The Amazing True Story of the New York Mets, The Best Worst Team in Sports. Gordon lives in Brookline, Massachusetts with his wife, two kids, and their dog. Devin, thanks so much for coming on the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm really excited to come. Well, Devin, I just have to thank you. Um, for so many years, I had just heard Joe Rogan's name and assumed, you know, every once in a while, there's like a person or a story in America that I just tell myself, I do not need to know anything about this thing that everybody talks about or listens to. So here's this very popular guy with his very popular podcast. And I had no intention of knowing anything but his name. <laughs> And then suddenly you pop up in my Twitter feed with The Atlantic with this long story. And I have to admit, at first, I was like, I don't even want to read the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I thought, this is exactly the story I have to read. And I learned, first of all, I learned quite a bit uh, about good writing. You tell a great story. I consider myself a decent writer. And I want to, so I definitely want to ask you, how do you go from being a decent writer to a really great writer, which I assume is something to do with talent and focus, but we'll get to that in a moment. But I want to ask you, how did this assignment come about? Mm -hmm. Uh, You didn't actually talk to Joe. Mm -mm. How did this assignment come, come about? And if it was an assignment that was, that you were asked to do, did you at first fight the idea of doing it? It was an assignment I was asked to do, but it was a rare moment of, um, I don't know if it's kismet, coincidence, karma, whatever you call it, maybe something of all three that. I had been thinking the exact same question that my editor, Adrian LaFrance, um, super editor um, um, of theatlantic.com, and I think the executive editor of the magazine, um, it was the same question that I had been wondering. And her question was, why is Joe Rogan so popular? And I had been wondering the same thing for a long time. This is, you know, sort of my terrain, um, covering culture. from all aspects of it. I worked for a men's magazine for a very long time, for almost a decade. Um, So thinking about men, why men are popular, which men are popular, and why they connect with men has been sort of my job for a really long time. And and thinking about it in the very narrow gradations um, that come with distinguishing between, say, GQ, Esquire, Details, all the various male uh, coverage outlets that existed at the time and still do exist. Um, that's a question you ask. 
why is Joe Rogan so popular? I couldn't understand it. I knew him as a bad comedian. I knew him as a supporting character on news radio, which was a show I liked very much for actors other than him. And I knew him to be a very popular announcer with UFC, which was a sport I had no interest in. Um, and none of it cohered with the Joe Rogan who is having supposedly these two and a half hour, three hour fascinating conversations three times a week with nuclear physicists and, you know, random celebrities. I just, I just, when you're a journalist and a question like that keeps nagging at you, you run toward it. And it just so happened that Adrian called out of the blue asking the same question. And so that's how, you know, it's a story you should definitely do. So I go and ask Joe Rogan. Uh, well, I ask his um, publicist, um, who's a, a, a longtime uh, comedy world publicist who represents a ton of comedians, um, if he might talk to me. And he goes, yeah, no, he's not going to talk to you. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. And, and I told I, I honestly, I didn't expect him to, for the very obvious reason of he has the most popular podcast in America, I think, maybe it's second. Um, and he can say whatever he wants, unfiltered, unaccountably. He doesn't have to answer questions from some jerk like me. Why, why does he need to do that? And that was what I figured. Um, and so it became a way of, well, look, he's already talked about, he's said everything he's, he's used all the words in the English language already. So for me, it was. The, the, the assignment was almost an essay, an observational essay. Just immerse yourself and try to figure it out. Put yourself in the position of someone who loves this guy and try to identify and then write what you see and try to sort your way through it. It was really fun. Well, I urge people to find the article. You can, you can uh, Google it and read it. Atlantic is one of the magazines that gives you some free content to enjoy, which I really take my hat off to. Not every, not every publication does. And I just, if very, very briefly, I'm just wondering, did you, did you like him by the end of your research more than you thought you would? Um, yes and no. Um, I guess I, it's hard to know. I didn't really go in with a strong opinion of him. I knew what I thought of him in the, in his entertainment world. I assumed he was really good at UFC and I, I, I respected him for that. I just don't care about the sport. I was interested in his fascination with it, but I both came away respecting him a lot more and understanding his talent and um, having some admiration for him um, and also disliking him more than I imagined I would um, for a number of reasons. It's also important to point out this was three years ago. So it was before the 2020 re-election. Um, it was before COVID-19. It was before him going um, full moron on the vaccine, which is a very predictable thing, knowing the Joe Rogan that I paid very close attention to for quite a while. It doesn't surprise me in the slightest that he um, is anti-vax or at least vax skeptical. Well, that's really interesting that you just said that because because of you, I listened to Joe Rogan's podcast, which I had never listened to. Yeah. And I listened to it the other day, actually last the other day, yesterday, on a drive back to, uh, to the Hudson Valley from New York City. And I deliberately chose um, his episode, recent episode with Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Yeah. 
And to my great surprise, Joe was very well prepared. He was, mm -hmm. I'm sure he prepared within an inch of his life. He knew a lot about scientific studies and in the, in, in the conversation really pointed out that the, his, his identity as an anti-vaxxer, there's a, a, there was a lot more subtlety to the, uh, to his actual position and his, the argument that is prominent in this interview with Sanjay Gupta is that, uh, I, that he had COVID Co Joe Rogan gets COVID and then, um, is saying if my body is producing a antibodies caused by the actual disease, why should I get the vaccine? Isn't, isn't, is he saying effectively, isn't getting COVID the, va the same as the vaccine? Yes. And so of course, you know, the, in the three hours, these long, you're right. It's a long, I only made it through two because that's how long the commute is. But I don't want to turn the whole show into talking about vax vaxes. But the point that you that all of this brought out in my mind was in the culture that we're living in, everybody's screaming and sensitive people scream with, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of uh, uh, issues about uh, virtue signaling and with um, woke culture is a kind of screaming. And then there's the Joe Rogan type of screaming, which is. I'm going to have my opinions and the mob is not going to tell me what I can and can't say. Kind of like Dave, Dave Chappelle recently with his comments about transgendered people. Um, and Laura Ingram today or yesterday or whenever it was on Fox, you know, standing up for Joe and saying, you know, don't let men get feminized. We want men to be, you know, opinionated and strong and say they speak their minds. And anyway, this all dials down to the, the purpose of our show. Adam and I don't have an agenda. We don't use the phrase toxic masculinity. We're not saying we're on a on a, on a campaign to el uh, eliminate toxic masculinity, although I wouldn't mind if it went away. But that's not really what the show is about. The show is about talking in and of itself. Mm -hmm. It's important and healthful for men. And we want men to talk not for the sake of just talking, which I think is a problem in our country where a lot of people just want to be heard, but they're not really saying anything we need to hear. We're mm -hmm. trying to encourage people to talk about what they want to talk about. And yes. that's really the key thing. What they actually want to talk about um, is often something they're not comfortable talking about. So I just want to say, listening to, you know, reading your article, then listening to Joe's show, I, you know, it kind of made me understand a little bit more the purpose of what we're doing here at this podcast. Um, and so I guess makes me, that makes me wonder if you, based upon what you said, if you came away with a tiny bit more, I want to choose my word carefully, um, respect for Joe than maybe you would have thought because he, for all his faults does that. I think, I think Joe is an interesting, the problem with Joe Rogan is, especially now that we've gotten into sort of vaccines and information versus, you know, um, some of the doofier stuff that he was getting in trouble for before, Joe is, it, it, the problem is not that Joe is ignorant. A lot of people think or assume that Joe is ignorant. He's not. His problem is the opposite. And it is a, it is a problem that I think is rampant in our culture, which is that he has access to way too much information and very little idea of how to parse it and separate the good stuff from the bad stuff. And the male, I think, part of him 
that I think drives people crazy is that by gathering all of this info, he privileges his own authority and expertise and ability to parse it out. And he stops listening at that point and becomes an expert. And it's that crossover between gathering the information because you're genuinely interested in knowing it and gathering information because fundamentally what you really want to be is the person who knows everything. That's where Joe, I think, tips over into a problem. And then he's blathering out stuff to an audience that also doesn't know how to sort through information. But he does it, to circle back to what you were saying, over the course of these long, considered, detailed, researched, often batty, loony, um, two and a half hour conversations that involve men exploring subjects that maybe they don't know a lot about or uncomfortable in. And that was part of my article is like, it's the yin and the yang of Joe. Isn't that a good thing? Like, don't we want men doing that? Don't we want them having role models who encourage them to explore the world, ask questions, be curious, learn things? That's good. And we better be careful about how much we condescend to that because it's a little hypocritical to say that that's what you want guys to do. And here is someone speaking their language to them and you're making fun of them for it. It's tricky. Well, you know, having sat through this, the two uh, hours of talk with Sanjay, I think that it was a, it was a valuable conversation. I think they actually listened to each other's critiques I mean, Joe felt like CNN deliberately lampoons him and Sanjay felt that, you know, was expressing that Joe was was sometimes, you know, kind of railroading over the facts yes. um, at, at times. And all that was good, but it just un underlined my, once again, go back to the, the premise of, of why we do our show is that, um, you know, we, we if we turn everything into sort of a, a game for who can be the loudest in the room, yeah who could have the most likes, who can get the most headlines, then unfortunately, a lot of what's important in life gets kind of thrown under the, under the mat. And mm -hmm. I, that's, what, that's really what I'm concerned about in our culture because that's what's happened to our political system. Mm -hmm. We now have, I think, politicians really who really are just glorified influencers. They're trying to get the biggest, loudest applause from the, loud, the biggest crowd, but they're not like, hey, let's identify three problems find some compromises and solve anything. So that's where I have an issue with the current culture that we're in. Tell me a little bit though about the culture that you grew up in. I mm. mean, did you grow up in a, describe a little bit your family growing mm. up. Were you in a family where you, you had great examples of, of men who were kind of nuanced or were they, were they kind of old school? Did they have sort of the old toxic elements that we that we've come to sort of talk about now? Um, well, my folks divorced when I was six. Um, so, uh, you know, my, my childhood, would, I, I would say, was sort of more defined by an absence of men. Um, you know, I didn't really, have, you know, I was in the Boy Scouts. My mother remarried, so I had a stepfather for, uh, you know, a couple of years um, who was... Uh, prominent in my life, that boyhood sort of adolescent age. Um, and so it was, you know, he was pretty old school. Um, you know, my father was from the boomer generation. 
Um, so he had a lot of those, um, you know, tendencies, but he was, you know, I was only seeing him once every couple of weeks by the time I was seven years old. So a lot of my childhood, um, and it's interesting that you bring up culture because this is the mid eighties, um, when everyone was getting divorced, it was just the cool thing to do in the, in the early to mid eighties was that's, that's what you did after you got married, you got divorced. Um, and so, you know, it was sort of the latchkey kid generation, right? All of the movies in that era that were kid movies, the kids, the parents were divorced, right? I mean, every Spielberg movie is a divorced family, right? E.T. is a divorced family. That's like one yeah, of the my, my parents divorced in the late 70s. So I was like on the on the front end. Of oh, that yeah. Curve. So so they basically when, made it cool. Yeah. yeah when Kramer were, versus Kramer came out, but it wasn't quite cool yet. Yeah, and it was actually it was more like, oh, no, I'm going to be damaged. I mean, that's like a worth a whole other show about it. But anyway, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Yeah, we're in the early eighties now. But you know, one of the interesting trajectories of culture that you only realize in retrospect was when I was a little kid, there was this movie called Irreconcilable Differences. Um, that was um Drew Barrymore um was the child that the parents were fighting over, and it was Ryan O'Neill was the husband, and I can't remember who the wife was. Sorry. Um, but it, you know, I didn't realize until much later that that was effectively a, 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 a remake or a watered down remake of Kramer versus Kramer, right? Like Kramer versus Kramer had been an Oscar winning movie and four or five or, you know, years later, there's still, everyone's still getting divorced and now we get irreconcilable differences. And it's basically a movie in the same tradition, you know, movies about parents fighting over kids, um, was a thing then, right? And Spielberg and ET, right? Like that's that's a divorce. That's a the the, the kids. Uh, the motivating thing is the kids are always home alone, right? They're always by themselves because mom's working, the dad's gone. Um, and so movies and sports were where I turned. Music um, were where I turned for, in retrospect, sort of ideas about men, models of men. Um, so if that, you know, if that gives you an idea. Can, can you think 80s, of some specifics though? Who were some of those models of men that, that loomed out in your youth? Um, well, a lot of them would be New York Mets because I was a really big Mets fan. Um, so it would be people like Daryl Strawberry and Keith Hernandez. Um, and or in football, it would be guys like Dan Marino, um, you know, who played for the, it was the star quarterback of that moment. Um, and because I was on the East coast and he played in Miami, you would see in, against the Jets a lot. I would, his games would be on TV, which was not something I would understand as a seven-year-old. Um, but would come to understand later was a reason why I would get to see him a lot. Um, and then, you know, in music, I would, I think I probably got into music a little bit before movies, but very, very quickly got into Robert De Niro. Okay. Now that I'm thinking about it, Robert De Niro was my first favorite actor. Um, and by the time I was around 10 or 11, I was sort of walking to the video store um, um, where I lived and coming home and bringing back VHS tapes that were wildly inappropriate for my age um, and got really into Robert De Niro. Right. Talking so like was, casino, like what, what De Niro? Are we talking oh no, we're point? going way back. Like, you know, that you like, you know, I, I'm trying to think of like, I watched Midnight Run, which is still one of my favorite movies of all time. I don't know if you're familiar. I've with never Midnight seen Run. it. It's a buddy. It's basically the, as far as I'm concerned, it's the best body comedy ever made. It's, right. it's the Nero is a bounty hunter. 
he picks up Charles Grodin, who's like a mob accountant turned witness um, in New York and has to bring him back to LA by a certain, by within three days in order to collect his, in order to collect his money. And it's basically, Charles Grodin can't fly. So they end up going cross country. It's like a very planes, trains and automobiles kind of thing. Very foul mouthed. Um, but just male, macho, hilarious. I mean, this is a hilarious movie. Every single line of this movie is just so funny. And they curse so well, so well. And I was, you know, like 10 or 11 years old. I'm like, you know, that's an amazing thing for, and I just fell in love with Robert De Niro. I was like, that guy's awesome. And then from there, you know, it's, you go back, right? If you're like a, you turn into a dorky culture kid, movie junkie kid, you go back and you watch Mean Streets and you watch, you know, Godfather. And he's not in that, but then you know, that gets you to Godfather part two. And all of these, I'm, I'm trying to, Raging Bull, right? Um, oh, yeah. Taxi Driver. My God, I think I watched Taxi Driver when I was 12. Ooh, <laughs> I mean, very <laughs> like, you know, talk about a latchkey kid experience, right? Like, you know, you don't, you don't bring home taxi driver. Um, if your parents are hovering around you and, you know, go to the basement and pop that in. Um, I actually made like a chart of all the Robert De Niro movies, um, and made an effort to see every single one of them, which is not easy to do in like the late eighties video stores because you know it's not like they've got like early brian de palma movies laying around you know so like you call yourself a, a dorky culture uh kid yeah what did that mean that you were not particularly uh like involved in school stuff where you were a popular kid where you were involved in school what, what kind of what kind i was of very i mean i was i was very involved in school i think in, i i considered myself um an outsider and isolated but i think in retrospect i wasn't as much as i thought i was um i you know i was just too opinionated you know what i mean i'm too i talk i you know I, i'm not going to keep things to myself so in that respect i was very extroverted in, in places like school and those kind of environments but in terms of friendships personal i always felt teased or something like that I, you know angry you know I was tantrumy as a kid. So, you know, that there was the, you know, there were days when I was getting along with everyone. And then there was a day that, you know, I was losing my temper at kids. You know what I mean? So it's like yin and yang. And what did you think it would be when you grew up? Hmm. I mean, did you always know you wanted to be a writer? No, I was writing the whole time, weirdly, but it didn't cross my mind that I would be a writer. Um, I, the first thing I thought I'd be was a meteorologist. Um, and then that passed. Um, I mean, obviously the first thing I thought I was going to do was a baseball player that passed really quickly. Um, and I think for a while I thought I'd be a lawyer. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I thought like I did debate in high school and I was very good at arguing. I was very stubborn. So lawyer just seemed like the natural, um, trajectory for me. I assumed I'd go to law school. I think I even went to some like pre-law thing at, at college just to, you know, learn what I needed to take or whatever. And, and then very quickly, Duke in North Carolina. And, and 
very quickly, like, it's funny, like the, I think the second or third day at Duke, I, I went to work at, I went to visit the newspaper for their open house for like reporters and writers because a friend from a really good friend of mine from high school, um, her family friend was the editor of the newspaper. She was a senior and was going to be running. She's like, Oh, you gotta go, gotta go meet my friend. She's amazing. You love her. Um, and I did, she was awesome and started writing for the newspaper. Um, the first week I was at college and basically never left that. So that became my real major. And that's when I realized, Oh, I'm not gonna be a lawyer. I'm going to do this. Yeah. I kind of was wanted to be a writer and I, I had very strong, um, messaging from my parents that it sounded like, um, not a very secure future yeah. in some way. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I kind of always have a little bit of regret that I didn't cultivate my writing skills better. And I'm, like I'm glad that fine. I, I love to write and it's something I do. It's a big part of my job as a, as a, as a promoter is sending people re- uh, mm-hmm. notes about music. And I've written a lot about music. It's not like I've not done a lot of writing, but I guess my question to you is to become a good writer. Tell us a little bit about how you actually get good at your craft. Is it really, is it about focus? Is it about just doing it, doing it, doing it until it's right? I really, th- this is a really personal question. I want to get mm-hmm. better at this. What is, what, is, what, is, what is the advice that you have on becoming a better writer? Well, I, um, I think one of the things that made me um, able to write now uh, and get assignments and get work um, was being an editor for so long. Um, I mean, I think I, I was making a living. I started out writing at Newsweek. I was at Newsweek for 12 years. Um, and I was a writer for the first eight or nine of them. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I had some natural talent at it, but mostly it was very simply watching the people who were really good at it and seeing how not so much they broke the rules, but um, learned how to color within the lines, I guess. Um, they had a very specific job to do in their writing, right? They were writing for a very specific magazine at very specific lengths that had a um, house sound that allowed for individuality. Um, And so I, you know, I started to learn in two directions. One, that you had a job to do with your writing and that every single line, every single word, every single paragraph. And that was a great thing about Newsweek is that you had to be extraordinarily economical, right? If you can write short, you can write long. Okay. It's so much harder to write short, um, but that you had a job to do and that each word, each sentence had to contribute to that project of communicating the story, getting the information across, et cetera, et cetera. And then on top of that, there is the other job, which is the layer of it that's writing all of that stuff in as interesting a way as possible, as entertaining a way as possible, as um, engrossing a way as possible. That second part, part of that is being is having it come to you naturally and having some instinct for it and creativity. But another part of it really comes from being an editor, because I think being an editor is what reminds you of all times of the reader, that you have an audience and the editor is there to make sure the writer is never forgetting the audience. My my editor at GQ, the editor-in-chief there, Jim Nelson, who's the best editor I've ever worked for, um, 
literally wouldn't let a sentence go by if it was boring him. Like if he's like, he'd get like three paragraphs into a story and be like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting lost. I'm, you're losing me. You're losing my attention. And he's, and he was not looking for junk food. He wanted beautiful, engrossing, enveloping, immersive writing because his view was you cannot take your reader's attention for granted. You have to, they have a phone in their hand, especially now you are competing with every other entertainment option in the known universe, including porn. Right. Right. I mean, that was like, you know, <laughs> every boring sentence you write is an opportunity for your reader to bail for porn. You're competing with porn. Think of it that way. Okay. Just think of your writing that way. How am I going to keep my writer or my reader engaged? Um, or, you know, keep them from going and looking at Instagram or going and watching Dune or reading a book or eating anything that they could do instead of reading your story is what you're up against as a writer. <laughs> so, you know, now that I've made you feel better, um, how do you think about containing that attention? And I think a lot of it is um, detail, observation, um, understanding that you have a story to tell um, and that you're not just throwing words at them and throwing facts at them, but you have to put it into a compelling emotional order that, that um, acknowledges the way they're consuming information and reading and um, processing emotion and digesting a story. Um, I feel like my writing, if it got good, it didn't get good until I was constantly conscious of the audience and the reader. And I think in maybe a fiction world or something like that, that would be um, a terrible thing to do, right? I think in a lot of fiction, you got to just like, just respect your audience by forgetting about them in some ways. This is, I think this is very different. This is the way I respect them is by understanding that my, their attention, I cannot take for granted. So I, I don't know if that answers your oh, question. Oh, it really does. That's, that's really good. And I'm going to go back and listen to what you said. And I wrote some notes as you were talking because it it also plugs in into the mindfulness in general that when you're when you're writing be you have to remember what you're doing and, to, and the most important thing remember the reader yeah and it's the same thing with a podcast we have to remember the listener what is the listener to tune in to and why are they going to spend an hour with with uh adam and i besides the fact that we're really nice guys um anyway um, th oh, I'm sorry, not to, not to interrupt, but like one of the things as you were describing is just simply give the people what they want. I mean, obviously do your job and use giving people what they want as an opportunity to take them deeper into more immersive ideas and experiences. But I want people to be engaged and entertained for every single word, every single sentence of every single paragraph and every single story I write. I just, I want I often use the word frictionless to describe how I want my writing to read. I just want it to be, you start it and it's like a rock rolling down a hill. And, and, and before you even realize it, you're, you're done. And bad sentences, confusing sentences, boring self aggrandizing sentences, that stuff knocks people out of stories. 
If you write a confusing, illogical sentence that's just tangled and bumpy and boring, we don't think of it this way. My boss was the one who, my editor, Jim Nelson, was the one who taught me to think of it this way. In just practical human terms, if you're reading a story and you get to three sentences that just confuse you and don't make sense, you're going to bail. You just are. That's human nature. And so not to we put have, you on, to, be, I'm have sorry. to think about it that way. Not to put you on the spot. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I could talk about I'm going to have to call you and get more, more tips or take your <laughs> class. I mean, I love it. Um, I, do want, I don't want to put you on the spot, but in, in, you've really interviewed some and written about some really important people of our age. I mean, presidents. I think, you know, well, I've Obama, worked on the Trump, projects, setting them up. I, I, those were situations where I was an editor, but yeah, working with those situations. Yeah. Where you hire a writer to go do the interview. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm just curious, of, uh, does any leap out as a particularly um, illuminating subject that you, that you were involved with as an editor writer um, uh, for the topic that we talk about, about masculinity, about, mm -hmm. about vulnerability, um, I don't know, maybe if you even want to say a word or two about your take on what you believe vulnerability is. Um, I mean, to me, there's so many um, universes of vulnerability, but the first one for me that comes to mind is, I guess, the professional world and the writing world, which is uh, being willing to fail, um, being willing to have people judge you um, having enough self-confidence to, that your work is good, um, that you have the right or the privilege to ask for people to listen to it and get paid for it. Um, it's a weird thing that almost takes a little bit of ego, right? It's almost like, well, why should someone read what I have to write? Why should someone listen to what I have to say? And it takes a little bit of ego about what you're putting out there, um, um, about the quality of it, because otherwise it is just pure ego with nothing for the audience. Um, and so being willing to have people say, this isn't any good, being willing to not execute a story very well, um, and writing a lot about masculinity in my stories and being so skeptical of it as I am, um, often writing about myself, you know, in the Joe Rogan story, I was often writing, um, a, a bunch of it was about me immersing myself in all the things that Joe Rogan loves and does all these products and exit, whatever. And the degree to which that's not me and, and sharing the non-traditional masculinity <laughs> that I consider myself. Um, you know, I'm a guy who loves sports, um, who is a terrible physical specimen and also finds the machismo of a lot of sports to be hilarious. I'm attracted to the hilarity of it and the male excellence uh, of it, of the male sports that I watch and also the female sports that I watch. Um, but like the role model, there's both the role model in the good way and the role model in the bad way um, in those universes. And I count that in culture, music, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm amused by the excesses and fascinated by the things that I like. Um, and so, you know, in the, in the, when you ask about people I've interviewed in terms of vulnerability, the first person that came to mind may be sort of counterintuitive, but it's Colin Kaepernick. That was the last cover project um, I edited. I was an editor almost exclusively at GQ. I, I very rarely wrote. 
Um, and the last cover project I edited was um, still, well, actually, no, he just did an, a semi-interview with Ebony Magazine a couple months ago. Um, but other than the cover that we did, um, I think it was 2018, that's the only media thing, major magazine cover, anything that he's done since um, um, basically being blackballed from football. And I worked on that for 15 months. Um, and it's the, I'm more proud of it than anything I've ever worked on. Um, but I bring his name up just because from a vulnerability perspective, I don't know how much you could, how much more vulnerable a person can make themselves, um, than what he did, um, literally taking on, um, at the risk of his own career, the end of his own career, um, we only get one life. Um, and he legit gave up everything for this, um, to talk about subjects. So that's vulnerable in the own, in his own personal life, in the way in which, in the decision-making, uh, and the sacrifices he made, but the subjects that he was talking about were about vulnerability fundamentally too. the vulnerability of black bodies in this country. Um, um, primarily being inspired by um, um, violence against black men by police as primary came to include many other things, but that was primary, primarily what he was kneeling about um, is you know, on, on as on as broad a level, talking about the vulnerability of your own life, the danger to your own life, the fear that you exist with on a daily basis in this country, um, as a black man, that is a man talking about fear for his own life. Um, you know, there's vulnerability all over the place there. Um, um, and even on the level of doing that project with us, he was exposing himself in a very risky way. He had taken a very public stand um, and was putting his message in the hands of people he didn't know, who were a commercial interest that he had to not trust on some fundamental level. And he had to make sure he was okay with how everything unfolded. So there's a lot of risk to himself that he's taking on a lot of judgment, a lot of exposure of himself. Um, and so that's, you know, much more than say, you know, organizing a cover project with president Obama at the white house, where he's not showing a lot of vulnerability. There was secret service all around the head guns. Right. Um, the Kaepernick thing strikes me as being all about vulnerability. Wow. Yeah. That's uh Really an amazing story. I, I did truly enjoy that article as well uh, with Kaepernick. It's it's really cool, especially with the other people commenting on him. And uh, I remember like in, in one part of it where J. Cole was just like, yeah, he's got the most balls in sports. And I was like, yeah, he definitely does. Um, and that's, uh, it, it takes a lot to, to really um, make a stand um, by one, you know, being silent. That was one of his parts too. Mm -hmm. um, the others, you know, just kind of risking, risking everything. Um, it really is interesting to me is, um, 
just how your profession and how your job kind of like works because you really do have to like, there's so many aspects of it more than just like writing the story, making a good sentence and yeah. stuff like that. So you gave us that, which is amazing and is really helpful, but there's a whole other side of, of your profession. And, and that's really where, where it kind of uh, piques my interest. And that is being able to like, you know, observe society, observe mm-hmm. people, observe a situation um, objectively and subjectively mm-hmm. um, and being able to see both sides of it and then telling that information. So in, in those times where you're really kind of like stopping and taking something in, um, I'm curious as to like what your mindset is, is when you're kind of like, you know, going up against things that you may one agree with, or maybe two not agree with. And you're like, Hey, like, I, I don't like this, but my job and, you know, my profession requires that I go into this with an objective mind and tell a story. So mm-hmm. could you tell me a little bit about like how you get prepared and how you kind of approach such a challenging and an intense story? Cause I find that really fascinating. Well, I, you know, while you were talking, the thing that kept coming to mind was, um, teasing out the difference between subjectivity and bias right? Yeah. One you can get rid of and one you cannot, you cannot get rid of subjectivity. You just can't. And any writer who tries to get rid of subjectivity is surrendering one of the most important things in their toolbox, which is perspective. What is your perspective? You are a single human being. And obviously, you know, there's straight news reporting, you know, that what <laughs> I'm not talking about, that's a different thing, mm-hmm. but you know, in the kind of writing I I'm doing it, your vantage point, um, not your opinion, just where you come from. The fact that this is a unique and individual person looking at this and not a blank is just inevitable. And also if I'm bringing to it personality and voice ideas, pretty soon you can't ignore the reality that there is a specific voice doing this and a specific person doing this. And that's what you want. It's sort of fundamental to the connection that a story has to make. That There really is a person on the other side of this and not just a byline. That's subjectivity. Bias is another thing. Bias is when I am letting my own opinion interfere with my telling of the story. This is what I think. This is what I believe. And I'm going to, I'm going to make that primary to the storytelling. It's going to be the first thing. And then everything I see is going to be filtered through that. That's bias and bias. You have to be, you have to get rid of. And one of the things that bias usually comes with is a lack of empathy, right? That's, that's where subjectivity um, becomes a great thing because it doesn't close you off from empathy. You know, it's, and that's, that's really where it gets into, I think some of the things that you're asking about is it is my job to put myself in another person's shoes and and see their argument and think it through from their perspective, not just from an emotional perspective, but from a practical perspective. It's my job to, you know, if I'm writing about someone, think very practically about how they go through their day or do what they do or think through their work. Those are not about opinions. That's just trying to understand where they come from and why they may believe a certain thing. And sometimes that's really hard, you know, like, the Trump era made that really hard, right? The anti-vaccine COVID era makes that really hard. It's really hard to put myself in those people's shoes and have any empathy. And with every passing day, I have less and feel like I should have less. 
But on, on some level, you have to do the exercise or you're not doing your job. I mean, and that's where the Joe Rogan thing comes in. Um, that whole article is about empathy, trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who really finds something genuinely helpful and inspiring about Joe Rogan, because there are millions of people, millions of people who do. And if I'm, if I'm gonna write a successful, useful, worthwhile article about that, starting with the assumption that he's evil and dumb and silly, and then I'm going to go into that and look at everything he does and all the people who like him through that prism, I'm preaching to the choir. I'm just writing for an audience who already knows what they think and is looking for someone to validate it. And that's not what I'm here to do. It's not what I'm here to do. I really want the answer. You know, it's like the difference between being a know-it-all and someone who actually does want to know it all. <laughs> like, you know, the know-it-all just wants to know it so that they can tell you what they think. Um, and so, you know, that's, I guess that's part of um, the exercise in, um, you know, in, in terms of getting to what you were talking about, the work behind it, the mindset versus just the scribbling of the words, Right. It's more of a mindset, I guess, is maybe the long way to answer it. It's just being like, you know, you got to make a case for these people at some point. Even in your own head, you've got to make a case for them so that you can understand it. Totally. Yeah. I mean, like writing for a confirmation bias is, is like you said, it's easy. It's handing out the candy. Uh, but being an empathetic writer is is tough. And going back to the, the Joe Rogan article, you mentioned about like the lack of role models and, you know, kind of the, the interesting aspect that we have now with male role models. Can you think of any like empathetic role models that we have in today's society or um, any really good empathetic writers um, that we can check out? Uh, Cause we, I think we do need to, to highlight some of the men that are doing it right and that are promoting good in our society today. <sighs> My mind always goes blank whenever people ask me <laughs> questions like that. So forgive okay. me. I may, I may over the next 30 minutes randomly tuck in names as they flit into my head. Um, but, you know, it's funny. One of the things that came to mind as you're, as you're asking that, particularly about male role models right now, is how few there are, particularly that I think we agree on. You know what I mean? I think that there are a lot that um, are out there and that men believe in. And that if you asked a lot of men out there, like if you asked someone on the street, man on the street, who their role models are, I'm sure they could, they could name a few of them. But I would bet that the people he names, a huge segment of people would think are objectionable, ludicrous. You know, they'd roll their eyes, they'd make fun of them. You know what I mean? They, you'd be scorned by a huge segment of the population for... Um, admiring those men. I'll give you I one. Go ahead. One example that leaped into my mind is early on in the pandemic, I thought, okay, you, Americans are going to unite. We're going to fight this common enemy, this virus. Yeah. And for a brief moment, I thought, like, oh my God, Anthony Fauci is going to be the adult in the room that across the spectrum, we can say, we all have to listen to this guy. Yeah. And maybe that lasted for a week. And then he became a punching bag for certain people and talking about infringement of our freedoms and all this other uh, stuff. And I, I don't want to you know, belittle the people who think that about him, but that was my 
wake-up call to how far American society had driven, uh, drifted into tribalism. Taking and, sides on people is yeah. what we do. We take we take political sides on people. On now. everybody. On everybody. And so the idea that there is, you know, that there are um, people who are on beyond reproach or um, or at least, you know, almost universally admired, you know, well, the, the I, 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 like Tom Obama. Hanks, like, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think everybody likes hey, Tom, Tom Hanks. Hanks. I like, think you but, may have, everybody like, likes Tom Hanks. Everybody likes Tom Hanks, um, you know, Tom Petty, um, RIP. But I remember thinking when Tom Petty died, who doesn't like Tom Petty? Like, you know, like, um, but there are so few people like that, especially now when, you think even the people that we used to maybe agree on, Denzel, everybody likes Denzel, right? Um, except that there are probably a lot of people who don't like Denzel. Um, I, I think there are probably a lot of people who think he's, you know, a bit of a bully or something well, like that. You know, thing, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. What, what, what we run into now in our culture is that the minute a, a, a widely admired person expresses a political opinion or uh, takes a stand that person then becomes a, a, a punching bag, you know, and, and you hear that phrase, oh, you should stay in your lane. You're an entertainer. Yeah. We don't really care about yeah. your politics. And, you know, I mean, if we get to the point uh, it, where, you know, stay in your lane also has all kinds of uh, other not so great in, uh, yeah. meanings to it. Yeah. Um, and we like, like, let's forget the lanes and let's take down the walls and let's stop with the demonizing language because really what we mostly are people who have very, very similar issues to deal with as human beings across the board. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, I, I personally feel in our country that we are a, a, a country where we are in a dysfunctional family where the parents are fighting. So the kids thinks it's, thinks it's normal. Mm -hmm. And I, that's why I blame the leadership mm -hmm. of our country mm -hmm. because I believe the leadership has chosen to play to play up on our divisions to serve the interests of the various people they serve and i don't want to go into a deep dive on on that but i think that's really what's happened in america people say oh we get the politicians that you know the politicians reflect the people i actually don't think that's the case mm -mm. i think i think leaders decide on what they're going to sell to the people and right now they're selling division and it's it's happened in our culture in the past and it may go further to where they sell division and irreconcilability to the point where there are people on the streets clubbing each other. I mean, we, we've had, we have societies that melt down to the point of civil war and I hope and pray that America never gets there. But well, there's uh, no new, the nuance I think is, and that's where my job comes in too, is an intolerance for nuance and complexity and the fullness of character in which there are certain people who can be amazing in a number of ways and really uh, uh, miserable and dislikable in a lot of ways, which is probably reflects the, the vast majority of us because we are complicated people who have pluses and minuses, talents and deficiencies. And we don't really want that. We want to be able to say yes, no to a person. We want to, you know, like you're either for this person or against this person. And, you know, one of the things that can make me, um, you know, sort of insufferable in conversations about people is that I won't do that 
is my job is to be nuanced, layered, complicated about people, in part because it always gets more interesting when you start to dig into those layers. The subjects get more fascinating. The rationales get more nuanced and layered. You learn more. You you accomplish more. You tell better stories. Um, but you know, I, I always think of someone like Elon Musk when that comes to mind because Elon Musk is someone that I have very ambivalent feelings about. Um, which is how I think someone should feel about someone like Elon Musk versus the outright contempt and mockery that you are supposed to express in a certain kind of social circle or universe in order to have currency and um, be permitted to enter the conversation. Um, that if you show any ambivalence towards someone like him, um, you fail the test of virtue um, right off the bat. Um, and that's just not the real world. I'm, I, I have no interest in that. It's just, it's, it's useless to me. And it's also sort of fraudulent. Like I always think if you really put the screws to those people and if you put Elon Musk in a room with them, they'd, they'd, they'd fawn all over him and ask him a ton of fascinated questions. And all of a sudden, all their problems would go out the window. But the room for that kind of nuance and complexity about a human being to say, I like this, but not this, you know, this person has good things to offer us. And there are things that I wish this person would has been really problematic for. Um, we don't, we just don't have any interest in that. So like to circle back to your question about male role models, I think a lot of guys, if you stop them on the street right now and said, give me a male role model, they'd say Elon Musk, right? A lot of guys would say that. And they'd say that because they drive a Tesla or maybe he's the richest man in the world or whatever. Um, but a lot of those reasons would be really fascinating and valid reasons. And the scorn that that answer would be met with, the rejecting scorn, not just Oh my gosh, you like that guy? Give me a break. The how dare you? You can't like that guy. It's unacceptable to like that guy. That feels like where the conversation is right now. And I feel like so many men fall into that category, right? I think Tom Brady, very few people dislike Tom Brady, right? Even, even people who used to hate Tom Brady, like me, now kind of like him because he's, you know, severed himself from the jerk parts, right? Oh man. They love it yeah. when I say that in Boston. Yeah, I bet. I was like, oh, I don't like Tom Brady because he's beaten us too many times, but he's an amazing quarterback. <laughs> I'm a Jets fan, so I've long passed, you know, hating yeah. Tom Brady for beating us. Everybody beats us. Well, I've but, said over I've said over and over again that I kind of want to reserve uh reserve my vitriol for people who really deliberately cause harm to others. Yeah. And and I think we very we too liberally use that phrase. Uh, oh, I hate this person. Like, oh, you know what? Yeah. Let's have a little. Let's have a little bit of nuance, even with our hatred. You know, it's one thing to hate a horrible. You know, hating Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler. Yes. If that's our level of like hate, then you actually don't hate that many people. There's not. There's there's a handful of human beings that were categorically evil. Now, whether or not certain other people. Uh, in our contemporary culture are that evil. I don't even want to say their names and, and, and get hate mail. 
that's a different story. But but um, I want to reserve my own personal vitriol for for really people who are obviously causing harm to other human beings out of choice that they really want to cause harm to other human beings. For we whatever. see that more of those, don't we now? Possibly, possibly. Maybe they're more uh, public. Maybe yeah. they're more naked about it. I don't know. I'm trying to dial down that that reaction because I did I did live. I will admit, in, during the Trump years, I lived with in a state of of real pain from yeah. what I thought was very co- uh, conscious choice to to harm certain segments of our society. Um, but I want to I want to go back to something you said earlier uh, about vulnerability in, in your own personal life when you told us uh, off off camera that you um left gq magazine editing your your job after the colin kaepernick uh story yeah um you went decided to what go off on your own and pursue writing full-time as your primary thing that you did i had no idea um no colin kaepernick was my last cover at gq i quit the day after it came out um um i've been at gq for about eight years um, as an editor, I was the executive editor there. So I was Jim Nelson's basically number two there, um, on the editorial side. Um, and I was burned out. I was exhausted. Um, you know, my mental health was deteriorating, um, just from the, the exhaustion of the work, but also the state of the industry, the state of Condé Nast, the parent company in particular, um, was just a company that that I couldn't bear anymore. Um, over the years, you know, as a familiar story in journalism, had been hemorrhaging jobs and hemorrhaging money, and you know, stepping on its own feet and tripping over its own shoelaces. And there were a number of reasons ultimately why I quit, but the vast majority of them were it, they were pretty much all about Condé Nast. Like I would say after I, I quit, I was like, I didn't quit GQ, I quit Condé Nast because I loved GQ so much. I loved working for Jim Nelson so much. It just became untenable. And it also became pretty clear to me that I was going to get fired in about a year or two. We all were. You know what I mean? Like that was the other thing. Like I, part of me quitting was like, I need to do this now on my own terms before I get, you know, pushed overboard like everyone else is going to eventually. And, and it was also like I could see that they just were not going to be able to solve their own problems. They just weren't going to be able to do it. So I needed to go on my own and figure out what I was going to do next. I knew, I honestly didn't really know. I was pretty sure I didn't want to do an, uh, the, what I was doing at another magazine, which was editing, like editing long form features and having like a crew of writers that I was always working with. I didn't want to go duplicate that somewhere else, or at least I didn't think I did. There were opportunities to do that. And I didn't want to do that. Um, The thing is, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And it wasn't writing. I had at that point, I had no confidence in being a professional writer. Um, One of the reasons why I had stopped writing to begin with and gone into editing was because I was reading the kinds of writers that GQ is publishing um, and thinking, I cannot do what those people do. And then I went and edited those people for years. And then I really thought I cannot do what these people do. Um, but without realizing it, I was learning the whole time and absorbing the whole time. And then subconsciously thinking, I think I can do this. 
I'd like to do this and never actually allowing myself to um, acknowledge it um, to the point where it's really wreaking havoc with my, with my mental health, I think. Um, and it was my wife and my old boss, crazily enough, who got me into writing, back into writing, because shortly after I had quit, about six weeks after I quit, my wife ran into Jim at a cafe. And he was like, well, you know, how's Devin doing? You know, I had, you know, sort of pulled the ripcord rather suddenly. I quit on him. Um, and she was like, she said to him, he wants to write, but he won't admit it. And, and then Jim assigned me a, a cover story about a month later on a basketball player that he knew I loved. And I loved the whole process of it. And that's what got me back into writing. So I take a lot from that story, but chiefly, um, I have a great wife, number one. Um, but number two, it's amazing to me, and it will always be amazing to me, that my old boss, who, you know, didn't owe me anything at that point. Um, you know, I had quit on him. You know, I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, it's not that. You know, it's not it's not like it was a betrayal it was a job i had been there eight years i had the right to leave it was a situation when a lot of people were making these kinds of decisions but still it was his number two he didn't have a lot of people around he had a lot of work to do it was a very difficult time and i quit and that is not a moment when editor in editors in chief of magazines at conde nast are supposed to have grace that's not the moment when editors-in-chief of, of magazines that big have grace. And um, uh, it, was, it was an amazing thing for him to do, and it, and, it, and it helped me see what I actually wanted to do with my life. Um, so there's, a, you know, there's vulnerability all around there. Um, um, but it was, it was quite a profound experience um, in my life. I think from the outside, it probably looked like a midlife crisis. Um, or a nervous breakdown, um, I, probably a midlife crisis. I don't, I don't know. All these bad words um, for an experience that while very painful, a very difficult transformative experience to go through in my life was also completely amazing and liberating and transformative and the best thing I ever did. I, it, it made me really wish our language around those things was very different because I think it, it screws up a lot of men from growing through something that they would be much better off going through and improving their lives as a result of. It reminds me of that guest we had, Adam, with the book uh, talked about life quakes. Yeah. Life is in the transitions with uh, Bruce Feiler. That's exactly what I thought of there. And yeah, Bruce Feiler called it a life quake. You had That's a life interesting. Quake. That's a, that's a great word. Um, it's, I mean, I, 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 do you want to go through a life quake? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Is I still think we need a word where people are like, yes, I, I want that. Like a life. He talks about the ones you choose. Yeah. And he talks about the ones that are given to you. The pandemic is a life quake that was just given to us and you have to confront it. And there are the life quakes that we choose. Yeah. This one was one I chose for sure. And, and what were some of your symptoms of you talk about like that it was impacting your mental health? Was it oh, anxiety, insomnia? Yeah, I went through periods of depression um, for the last two years or so that I was at GQ. And I think it was a combination of um, exhaustion, 
you know, depression really is just such a, that's one of the things I learned. It's just such a physical thing that when you um, run out of mental energy and emotional energy, um, it, 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 you can work yourself into a depression. That is one thing I, I, I learned. Um, but I think there were other components to it. Number one, I think by that point, I could sort of see that this was going to reach an end, right? Things were getting rough enough at Condé Nast that, that I knew that the end was nigh. And I was very sad about that because I loved my job and I loved the people that I was working with. And some of them were starting to leave for other places because we couldn't, and we weren't trying to pay them <laughs> to keep them, which was really depressing to me. Um, and then what I didn't realize until much later was that I wanted to go back and write and I just was not listening to myself. And I think I was um, um, upset at my lack of courage more than I probably realized. It's really in interesting respect. that you said you weren't listening to yourself. And generally uh, we have like nonstop talk going in our head, yep. babbling us all day long. Um, so that, so I find that, uh, you know, just kind of unique that listening to ourselves really gives us the path that we need to take and, and shows us the way, even though it is, you know, very scary mm -hmm. through depression, uh, you know, through confusion and, you know, probably lack of understanding. But now that, you know, you're on the, the other side of it, you've got an awesome book out, you've got some, some really cool things going on for yourself. What, what are the things that you took away from, from that transition, um, you know, along with listening to yourself? Mm. Listening to myself is such a big one. I mean, even on a physical level, you know, yeah. just taking care of myself. I mean, I, you know, I was just working too hard and I, you know, my mind body connection is not the strongest. You know what I mean? It's doesn't, doesn't run well in our family. We're just kind of like plow through it. People, um, you know, like my back, <laughs> So funny that I'm going back to my back is a little messed up right now. And that started at GQ, right? Like that was, you know, sitting in a chair, hours, you know, work, stress. And, and I didn't make any connections between the back pain that I was experiencing and the hours I was working. You know, I knew I'm not an idiot. I knew I was sitting on my butt too much editing stories. I'm dumb, but like, but I didn't think you need to work less would be the solution to the problem. The solution to the problem was just go to a doctor or go to a chiropractor, fix it. And then when it felt better, go back to doing it again, right? Manage the symptoms. Um, you know, that was a big deal was um, listening to that stuff. And I think once I started doing that, what I started realizing was that I had spent most of my career um, working really hard and being creative, but fundamentally for other people's final product, right? Whether it was Newsweek, um, where I was writing, but you're at a place like Newsweek, more than any other, you really are subsumed into the organism. It's, it's, you're supposed to have a house sound. You're all supposed to sound like Newsweek. It's not like a feature magazine, right? So even writing there is you're, you're serving a master. Editing, you're helping writers and other creative people, designers, photographers, 
do their best work, not just the writers, the designers and the photographers too, trying to come up with stories that allow them to do something really exciting, right? That's something that I learned at GQ. You're not just there for the writer. You've got to find really exciting ideas for the photographers to do, really exciting ideas for the designers to do. All of these creative people that you are serving and figuring out how to make their dreams, their creative dreams happen, right? And I really, there's a lot of creativity there too. I really loved that part of it. But you were still ultimately, if I was editing for a writer, it was their story, right? Um, it was GQ's cover. Um, it wasn't mine. And at some point, I needed to be making the things that I wanted to make and writing the sentences that I wanted to write. Um, and that was a big okay that I had to give myself, right? You have to give yourself permission to do that, I think, or I did. Some people don't. Some people just blunder right into it. I mean, and I think that that can be both good and bad, right? It can mean that there's some people who are stampeding into rooms that they have no business being in. And then it can result in you just not being intimidated by anything. And that was one thing I think was fortunate for me in terms of being an editor and being a writer was I just... For whatever reason, I never got intimidated by being in those rooms. I was always fine with that. I was always able to be like, oh, yeah, you're just a person, you know, no matter who it was. And, and also was able to sort of discover pretty early that most of those people liked being related to on that level, right? They weren't used to being related to as actual people. They were used to being treated as a capital letter pronoun. Um, and that... So that maybe served me well, but that's very different from giving yourself creative permission. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, your, your story really reminded me so much of, you know, my decision to leave the record industry mm -hmm. it was for very similar reasons. I saw the writing on the wall that the industry mm -hmm. was kind of collapsing. I had done mm -hmm. it for 13 years and I loved my job and it was it was really sad for me to admit that I had to get it. I had to figure out what to do. Yeah. And I, I was lucky. I was able to start a company. I've been doing it for 21 years. Um, and I love, I love what I do. I love being a, a, an entrepreneur and having a, a business with employees and all the and clients and all the processes that go, but that ultimately towards creating those sentences that you craft um, that and being the creative focus and center of things i mean i never thought i'd be a professional musician so i never wrestled with oh i i just don't have the balls to become a professional tenor i just don't have the i actually don't have the voice for it um or or a pianist or whatever it might have been but you're you're taking that leap to me is i'm look, i'm looking i'm going to be 60 next july and i'm like hmm Am I going to take another leap? Am I going to have another life quake? Am I going to do something? Or am I going to just sail on this wave of this stuff I've been doing for the last 21 years? I don't really know the answer, but your story and how you've told it has really put some ideas in my head. Um, and and I'm, I'm very grateful. I mean, first of all, you're so articulate and so eloquent. You said so many great things uh, chatting with us today. Um, I've not read the Mets book because I'm a lifelong Yankees fan. Best. Make the argument in three sentences or less. Why should a lifelong Yankees fan read your book on rooting for the Mets? Because literally every chapter is about us losing. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> you know, like you'll be happy with the outcome every time. I will say though, I did consider writing the book. And I, I, I really did think this from the start 
when I got the, the deal was I am going to use this as an opportunity to get every Yankee insult I possibly can into this book and into the Library of Congress because that's what happens to books. And I just want to pour every angry, just, I want to dig on them as much as I can. So if you're the type of person who likes to be trolled by uh, Yankee insults, the book might also be for you, but mostly I would recommend it because you'll be very happy at the outcomes. And what, what for the non-baseball fan, non-Mets fan, are there any trans, sort of transcendent themes that come from the concept of caring about something just because you do and not because they win? Is yeah, like I mean, no, I mean, I like to think that the book, you know, I hope that the book is fun for anyone who cares about sports or cares about life. I mean, it's, 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 it's about losing and it's about how we're all losers and that we need to embrace losing and see, because once you embrace losing, once you remove the sort of the, the, the brass ring of winning, that's when you're able to actually enjoy things. That's when you're actually able to notice all the good stuff that happens while we're in the moment and actually doing these things, because the winning is always off in the future. It's, it's, it's never something the Buddhists would hate the idea of winning. It's never a present tense thing. And then as soon as it's gone, you turn it into nostalgia. Winning stinks. And people should recognize that and read my book and understand why losing is so much better. There's vulnerability for you, right? <laughs> Adam, you want to jump in there? Yeah, yeah, no, um, that's a great, uh, great way to put it. There, I think it's a great concept and a, and a, and a great theme to expand upon. Is 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 that is you know accepting loss and, and stuff like that? So, I just want to say it's it's been a, a pleasure hanging out with you today, Devin, and, and I, I really uh, I'm looking forward to, to more of, of what you're right here. And I just kind of want to highlight a couple things that that I I really took away from our conversation, and that was. Um, you know, to serve yourself well. Um, you, you mentioned that in in our in our uh, talk here today, and uh, you know, give yourself permission, whether it's to be creative or whether it's to lose. Um, and you know, by giving yourself permission, um, also give yourself you know some time to listen to your actual body in, in your head. That's uh, really important, and it looks like that served you well. Um, and, and one thing that you spoke about, um, kind of in the middle there, um, was about going really deep into a conversation. Uh, without bias and the more deep that you really go um, with people is the the more interesting it can get so that's something i took away and i think it's a really cool thing to to end on you know with the, as a conversation with a, a journalist because that's that's a big role um is is really going deep and uncovering a lot of things whether it's right wrong true false it's it's there and alive and, and you show us some truth so uh thank you so much um for, for our time together here it's been a pleasure Great. This has been another episode of the Veer Vulnerabilisphere podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. And I'm Albert Imperato. And I'm Devin Gordon. Thank you for listening. <laughs>